Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Foolish Heart, as recorded by Steve Perry and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Randy Goodrum. The Arkansas native spent his formative years playing in a jazz band with future president Bill Clinton before going on to write a ton of number one pop and adult contemporary hits, including Michael Johnson's Bluer Than Blue, Toto's I'll Be Over You, El DeBarge's Who's Holdin' Donna Now, and Anne Murray's You Needed Me, which earned Goodrum a Grammy nomination and became the ACM Song of the Year. Additionally, he wrote Chicago's If She Would Have Been Faithful, Steve Perry's Oh Sherry, and A Lesson in Leaving, which was a number one country hit for both Dottie West and Jody Messina. In 1981, Randy won six ASCAP awards in a single year and was named ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year. His music has been recorded by Gladys Knight, Reba McIntyre, Ray Charles, Michael McDonald, Al Jarreau, Chet Atkins, Natalie Cole, The Commodores, Kansas, Dusty Springfield, Vince Gill, Trisha Yearwood, Michael Bolton, Isaac Hayes, Tammy Wynette, and many others. Goodrum was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2000. You know, when I have memories as a kid of listening to music, I think about it in strange places. Sometimes I'm in my parents' car. Right. Sometimes I'm at home. Sometimes I'm doing my homework. And sometimes I'm at the wave pool at Wave Country in Nashville. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. There are certain songs that I just remember hearing maybe like standing in line to get some awful pizza or lying on the AstroTurf getting sunburned. And I would hear the song coming out of the loudspeakers and I would just sit there and kind of listen to it. And one of the songs... The tinny individual speaker way up on a pole. And one of the songs that I remember blasting out of the speakers of Wave Country was... Should have been gone. Actually, the title, Oh Sherry. Yeah, man. Absolutely. It's like a, it just reaches out of the speaker and grabs you by the throat. Totally. And uh, it, it was a good couple skate song. It was a good <laughs> wave country song. It was a good carpool song. Totally. And Randy Goodrum wrote some of the best 80s songs that I remember. Yeah. I mean, the the nostalgia factor with, with his music. You know, actually, I was in first grade with Randy Goodrum's daughter. Wow. And she was considered like this really cool girl, right? In first grade. And like all the guys thought she was cute. And I don't know what makes you <laughs> cute when you're like six. Right. But she was popular. All the boys, you know, liked her. And her dad was this kind of cool songwriter yeah. dude. But not, I mean, songwriters, you know, in Nashville, they're around, but like who also wrote like pop songs. Right. Well, yeah, growing up in Nashville, we always knew who a lot of the songwriters were. But if you were like a rock or pop songwriter, like yeah. kind of an L.A. guy, you were a little bit in a different category. Yeah, you were cool. Yeah. I was not the cool kid uh, in first grade or in any grade. <laughs> so I casually observed this you know, phenomenon from a distance. Well, if I had known at that point that you knew a kid whose dad had written, Oh, Sherry, Foolish Heart, Who's Holding Donna Now?, and maybe the biggest one for me would have been if she would have been faithful by Chicago. Yeah. Then I would have really, really badly wanted to be her friend and wanted to be in that first grade class. Yeah, yeah. If only if only we known each other then. But we do know each other now, and now I feel like we know Randy Goodrum. You want to hear from him? Yeah, let's uh, let's go to that awesome conversation we had with uh, the great Randy Goodrum. (laughs) 
Randy, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you. Nice to be here. So you were born and raised in Arkansas. How did your environment growing up shape your musical identity? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. I, um, my dad was uh, uh, a doctor, but he also played guitar every night. He played sort of like uh, block chord style uh, jazz guitar, I suppose, at night, playing old standards and stuff. And then my right. brother uh, would turn on blues stations at night, uh, oh. which we could get. New Orleans, and actually we got uh, WLAC, uh, which was back in the 50s, was uh, playing blues at night. Right, out of Nashville, right? Yeah, or, or WLS in Chicago, yeah. or we listened to uh, w, you know, uh, Kansas City. We had, we had tons of amazing radio stations, and my brother was five years older than me, and he kept pestering me playing these blues stations. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, But after a while, I developed a taste for it. Yeah. And he he uh, and I both um, played by ear. We had a little spinet piano in the house, and uh, so uh, my brother, you know, was older than me, and and, uh, and I looked up to him in, in a lot of different categories. And he, he he would play the blues that we heard at night on the radio. He'd go in and pick it out by ear on the piano, and so yeah, I sort of uh, followed in his footsteps, and uh, uh, and so I guess. My first really love of music was, I mean, I, I liked all kinds of music, but I really loved uh, anything to do with blues and R&B. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then I understand that you went to Hot Springs High School where you played in a jazz trio called the Three Kings with a, a drummer named Joe Newman and a guy by the name of uh, Bill Clinton, who I, <laughs> I believe went on to achieve some success in the political realm, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we decided um, I'd be the piano player and Joe would be the drummer and he'd be the president. <laughs> no, actually, uh, uh, actually, he was, I think, uh, at the time, the same as I, he was, he was thinking of... Uh, what he was going to do when he grew up, and music was one thing. He was uh, he was quite the accomplished uh, musician. He uh, was an all-state player, which uh, you know he, he was. Uh, he, of course, he was academically advanced and ahead of everything. Right. And uh, but he was fun. He, I mean, he, he we, we jammed. We learned a whole bunch of songs and, and tried to find some places to play. It was kind of hard, you know. But uh, right. You know, we, we we didn't have a bass player. We there was no bass player, so oh, wow. we just had piano, drums, and sax. But uh, um, yeah, he he actually was a year older than me in school, and he he invited me into the the group, and uh, uh, it, that was my first uh, band I was ever in that played live in front of people. Wow. And, uh, that's cool. So you know, my my first band, uh, I was in it with my co-host Scott. And I'm, oh, really? Yeah, I'm still waiting for him to do something important. Uh, I thought Paul was going to become president, and <laughs> yeah. I guess we... We'd... You never know how that's going to work out. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess we still got time. Always, always be nice to your fellow band members. Right. You never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Well, you know, that actually brings up a, an interesting uh, point, because, you know, people not might not realize how much... Um, power, you know, Congress has to set licensing rates and to make decisions that really affect the ability of songwriters and, and other creative professionals to make a living. And once Clinton became president, did did you ever have the opportunity to talk with him about issues like intellectual property and, and some of the ways that our you know elected officials can can advocate for songwriters? I didn't I didn't lobby him, and I'll tell you part of the reason why. First of all, I never used my friendship with him uh, to my advantage. Uh, I never tried to to get political favor or any kind of stuff because I wanted right. to remain friends with him. Right. Yeah, know? sure. It, 
start doing that, and your 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 relationship changes sure. like instantly. Yeah. But anyway, uh, here's the thing: he was a constitutional lawyer, uh, professor in, in college. I mean, mm. uh, he understood copyright law. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting when you're when you're a president, you really, you, it's really you're not a legislator. You're there to sort of have, you have veto power and so right. forth. Right. But and there are things you would like in, in your agenda, but. But really, it's up to the Congress and the Senate. Uh, and I found, uh, way before I knew he was ever going to go into uh, politics and stuff, but when I first moved to Nashville and got into, there was uh, issues with, with the taping off the air and all that. Right. And so I discovered straight away that a lot of people in Congress have no clue about this hmm. at all. And right, right. A lot of the public doesn't, and that's one of the uh, issues. They figure, you know, if you have a song that hits the charts and you're you're fabulously wealthy the rest of your life, <laughs> right, you right. can live on a yacht someplace in the Mediterranean and no problem. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it's not really the case, is it? Right. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you went from a kid growing up in Arkansas to then moving to Nashville to pursue music. And uh, when did you first get into writing songs? And how did you know when it was time to make that leap? Okay, uh, that's a really good question, and, and I'm going to try to make as short an answer as I can. During college, my first, my, my freshman year in college, a friend of mine uh, asked me to help him write a musical because uh, he was strapped for time and didn't have really time to, to do it on his own. Right. And I said, man, I, I don't write music. And he said, well, yeah, but you improvise. I mean, it, it, you know, he said, look, here's the deal. I don't have time to do it. If you help me, I might be able to pull this off. So I said, well, I'll, I'll give you a day, hmm. and, and we'll see how it works out. Right. So we got a couple of pianists facing each other in the uh, practice rooms at the music department. And so I realized right away, I said, hey, uh, this is not very difficult. And uh, <laughs> uh, and so, and it's fun. Yeah. So, hmm. And it was kind of like jazz, you know, try to think of something original, try to think of something catchy that'll move people. Uh, you know, it, it's fresh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, which is what you try to do when you play a solo in jazz. And right. so uh, I was using that ethic, uh, which I still try to do. So that kind of got me into songwriting uh, through a side door. But you see, I was so sheltered at the time. I guess uh, wasn't really sheltered, but I wasn't paying attention enough to the songwriting world to realize that all I, I could actually have just been a melody writer and done oh, fine, right. or in the lyricist. But what I did was I, I figured if you're going to be a songwriter, you have to write the whole thing. Uh, yeah. So I spent the next 10 years developing uh, my song melody and lyric style to where I could get something people could stand to listen to. And, <laughs> um, uh, and I say 10 years because it was around 10 years after I started uh, writing that musical that somebody actually said they wanted to record one of the things I wrote. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so, but the thing is, um, I moved to Nashville not to be a hit songwriter or to, to necessarily uh, make it as a songwriter there. I hoped somebody would cut some of the things I was writing by then. Right. That was 1973. But I was happy just to be able to move there and uh, work in studios mm. or on the road. or And, and uh, an old fishing buddy of mine uh, who had done some songwriting and publishing and, uh, and had moved to Nashville and was doing okay. And right. had a little publishing
publishing company, and he said, hey, why don't you just come check it out? Maybe I can get you in a couple of sessions, and uh, he was producing some jingles and things. Right. So I went over and, check, and checked it out and played on a couple of dates and instantly fell in love with being in a studio. I yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah. And I said, hey, I think I can make a living as a studio player here. So we moved to Nashville, and the, and the thing that's great about this was the thing that really made it click was that my 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 friend uh, Bob Milsap, who was uh, my first publisher, my fiction buddy, right, um, was also uh, he had a small publishing company, and he'd had some hits, and he knew how to run a publishing company, and he had a little demo studio and all that. He lived out in Donaldson, hmm. and he his comment about my writing was. Because I wasn't writing country, it wasn't really country or pop. Right. Uh, it, it wasn't really something you put your finger on. But he said, he said, Randy, he said, I'm not really sure what you're doing here, but but all I know is I like it. And I'll publish it. Uh, cool. And I said, oh. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't realize then that that was like when I look back uh, uh, across my career since then. Uh, how many publishers do you run across who say things like that? Right. I mean, that's, right, right. Usually they want to to you to already walk in with a couple of things pretty much in place, yeah, and some money stream pretty well established. I'm not being down on publishers because I'm very no. pro publisher. Yeah, no, you're right. But um, but he basically just said, I don't really get what you're doing, but but I like it. Right. Well, and you mentioned you know coming to town, falling in love with uh, the studio, and. You also had the opportunity to, to play keyboards with people like Roy Orbison and Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins. Um, in what ways did being around those sort of legendary established artists shape you as a creative person? Well, uh, I think everything... Uh, when you get to a town like Nashville or L.A. or New York, I'm just going to pick those three, they're, they're such a strong influence. Uh, you, you almost have to be careful. It's almost like adding a, a, a very strong spice to a recipe. <laughs> you have to be careful how much you put in there. Well, of course, now you mentioned Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed was like one of the most uh, amazing geniuses I ever mm. knew, who never knew he was a genius, really. <laughs> right. He was so self-deprecating. I mean, he he thought he didn't know anything. And, <laughs> but what he could do with the guitar was like not even human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, England Dan and John Ford Coley had their big breakthrough in 1976 with I'd Really Love to See You Tonight, uh, which they followed up in the summer of 1977 with your first Billboard charting hit as a songwriter, It's Sad to Belong. Um, and that song hit number 21 on the pop rankings. It reached number one on the easy listening chart. Um, pretty pretty good success for a, a first charting single. Tell us how that came together. You know, when I wrote It Said to Belong, I had um, actually gone on a gig one night in Nashville, and I, I didn't really know Nashville very well, and I was making ends meet again with, with some weekend gigs, you know, playing some casuals around town. Sure. And I had a gig at a Knights of Columbus, so I looked up the Knights of Columbus and uh, found the address over in Curry Road. Right. So I'm driving over there, and I drive up to it about 10 minutes to 9 when the gig was at, at 9, and there was nobody there. Hmm. And I thought, uh-oh, 
uh, maybe it's the wrong night. So I walked in, there was one guy in the kitchen, and I said, is this the Knights of Columbus? And he goes, yeah, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> the lone Knight of Columbus. <laughs> so I found out there were four, there were four Knights of Columbus in Nashville. <laughs> oh. And the one I was going to, I said, what is the likelihood of one of them being open, and where would that be? And he said, over by St. Thomas Hospital. So, of course, I was like getting there, but uh, on the way there, I was so upset, which is a good time to write songs, my <laughs> right. that I did a lot of, I had a pad in my car, I always had a pad and a pencil in my car, and I wrote, it's bad to be at the wrong place at the right time. Hmm. And uh, and I said, well, I'm sure that's been written. Uh, so I started knocking around uh, different ways of re-facing that, and uh, ended up with it's sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. Mm, By the time I got to the gig, I had that premise. Right. And so then, and it also was, I thought I I I would come up with a better hook than that eventually in the song, but I didn't. (laughs) So I just used that as a title. And um, that's how that that's how that happened. Well, in the first half of 1978, you you scored a couple more singles uh, with Gene Cotton's "Before My Heart Finds Out," which was uh, a number three hit on the Adult Contemporary chart. And then there was Michael Johnson's "Bluer Than Blue," which was uh, number one Adult Contemporary single and a number twelve pop hit. finding success from Nashville, but as you say, these were not really country songs, so to speak. Was Nashville more diverse in that era than the general public might have perceived it to be? You know, I'm glad you said that, because I feel like I'm the only one who ever says that. But Hmm. when I moved there in 1973, uh, it it was an entirely different town. I mean, uh, it was it was pretty wide open. Yes, it was a, it was definitely the heart of country music. There's sure. no doubt about that. But really, it was a town that was uh, at the time being run by people who sort of came up from that region, like Owen Bradley and, and Chet Atkins, and they could cut anything. They could cut a pop song by someone that was on the charts at the moment, and it would have a Nashville sound. It right. had a yeah. Nashville flavor. And so, uh, and there were a lot of people who were going to Nashville at that time uh, to make their record to sort of get that flavor. They weren't necessarily reverting, switching the country. Right. They just, you know, people like Bob Dylan. Uh, you had, um, I think, Joe Tex did his mm. R&B record there. You yeah. had uh, uh, Jesse Winchester did one. Dobie Gray. Uh, right. You had all, you had all kinds of uh, projects that people would just come there. And, and make the record just to get that flavor. Sure. I would just say that uh, the '70s were were pretty diverse. Mm, uh, yeah. I played as a musician. I played on a, a lot of uh, different kinds of pop records. I played on a lot of jazz records because hmm. I was a jazz player. Uh, right. And uh, of course, I played on uh, quite a number of country records. But I mean, it was um, it was just. You just never knew what you were going to be playing on mm. when you went to a session. Yeah. Well, c- continuing with your writing success, in the fall of 1978, Ann Murray had an enormous hit, You Needed Me. You put me high upon a pedestal so high that 
That was a top five country hit, a number one pop single, and it earned you the ACM Song of the Year Award and got Anne a Grammy for Best Pop Vocal Performance. Now, it's a simple song, but it's also an unusual song in that it's, it's just a verse, a bridge, and another verse, kind of without a traditional hook or chorus. Now, were you ever pressured by kind of the music industry powers that be did they ever try to get you to rework that song into a more kind of traditional oh, formula? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yes. I mean, <laughs> my songs, I, I almost apologized to publishers when I would sign in the deal. It's like, look, it's not going to be as bad as you think. You know, it's like, I will eventually make you money. Just relax. You know, it's right, like, right. Because, you know, I would hand them all these songs like that, which, uh, which I said, look, uh, they were like taking a hill in Korea, really trying to get them <laughs> <laughs> to a place uh, where where somebody would record them or, or and it was not easy. Right. And the thing was, I I but I had faith that if the public ever heard them, mm. uh, you know, and, and it would be okay. But you see, yeah, you mean to me doesn't have a chorus, but you see, I came up playing all the old standards. I mean, and there are a lot of old standards that don't have a traditional chorus. Sure. Right. One in particular is when Sunny gets blue. Mm-hmm. And I used to. I use that as an example in meetings when I would, somebody would say, hey, where's the chorus? You know, and I'd say, well, it doesn't need a chorus, really. If I did, it would be, first of all, seven minutes long. And secondly, <laughs> uh, it really doesn't need it. I mean, it's... Uh, and, and Anne Murray actually got that in the mail. That was simply mailed. And so um, it wasn't on any... I guess she was on a pitch list of some kind. But right. I think that particular mailing, we sent that song to Helen Reddy, Ann Murray and Cher, huh. and and Ann Murray uh, cut it. So. Awesome. Well, you, and you continued to have success with Ann uh, that following year. Um, once again, when she took your song "Broken Hearted Me" to number one on the country and adult contemporary charts. Now, all these songs that we've mentioned thus far, your early successes were written by yourself. Um, it, you, you mentioned that kind of dynamic between you know not having co-written a ton at that point. W- were you doing any co-writing with people in the seventies uh, and songs that just well, weren't getting cut? Well, you know, or? I was when I started having publishing deals. I, I've gotten quite a bit of pressure from the publisher to co-write. You know, because one of their sales would be, "Oh, if you sign with us, we can get you some great co-writes." Mm, and, right. You know, and I was thinking, okay, but you know, I, I did learn uh, that. Some co-writes are are really uh, fun, and and you you know, but but quite often I find that co-writing for me was a sort of a watering down process because, or, or maybe it was hard to stay focused on the premise when you have more than one person because right. I I don't want to get into the minutiae of it, but uh, I I still enjoy writing just on my own and but I know that uh, and you know there's a certain networking mm. um, advantage to co-writing and all that I yeah. mean, you have uh, a lot more inroads to who's doing what and who's looking and all that sure and um, and some some writers only co-write I mean okay. it doesn't mean that they're less of a writer but I mean that's just what they do you know right and, uh, and that's fine. And uh, sometimes uh, I co-write songs with people, and when I'm done, I'm thinking, man, there's no way in the world I would have written that song mm. on my own. I'm so glad I co-wrote it. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Let, let's talk about Dottie West uh, for a moment. Um, between 1979 and 1981, she hit the most successful period in her career with like seven consecutive country singles that reached the top 20. And you were 
a writer on six of those seven singles and, and co-produced all of them with Brent Mayer, who, uh, of course, is best known for his production work with the Judds and, and, and others. Um, I want to hear a bit of uh, You Pick Me Up and Put Me Down, which was the first of those singles. How did you get involved with with Dottie, and what was it about that era in particular that gave her such a boost uh, twenty years into an already successful career? Well, you know uh, what happens is I've I've had some success, and I'm uh, been going out to L.A. trying to uh, expand on some of the pop part of it because I can't uh, really find too many pop artists in Nashville at that time and right. the seventies, but Brent said, hey, well, you know, why don't you try co-producing? Let's try and find somebody and, 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 and produce them and together. That might be fun. I said, okay. So, one of, so he brought me, brought me the idea of Dottie West. And, uh, and he said, now here's the thing. He said, I know you're not country. And I, and I said, well, I'm not, I don't think I would do her any good. And he said, well, she wants to really branch out and, and, and branch out from where she is and, and expand. And I said, right. oh. Okay, so we met with her. She was delightful and a total pro, and uh, and we um, instantly liked her. So we, we said, well, we're going to try to write a couple of things and, and see what you think. So the first thing we wrote was, you picked me up right, and uh, put me down. And we, we wrote that and a couple of other things and went to her, and she just loved them. Hmm. And so um, we, I think we recorded uh, a session maybe with three or four things and playing for the label, and they loved it, and everybody was happy. And it was a, sort of a, you know, again, it was it was that 70s, late 60s mentality Nashville had back then, which was like, they, you know, it was enough that they were from Nashville. I mean, that body was a Nashvillian, and that yeah. record was being done there. That was enough, you know. You didn't have to hit people in the head with a steel guitar to make, make sure it was country, you know. <laughs> right. And country radio loved it, you know, and uh, we, we had a lot of fun with it. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the great ones was uh, when we did Lesson and Leave. Somebody's gonna give you a lesson in losing. Somebody's gonna do to you what you've been doing. And I hope that I'm around to watch them knock you down. Somebody's gonna give you a lesson in hurting. Somebody's gonna leave you with your fire burning with no way to put it out. Baby, there ain't no and that was, I mean, you know, a number one country hit. And, you know, then you, of course, followed up that first album with, with another album, the the Wild West LP, which uh, included the duet, What Are We Doing in Love, that Dottie recorded with Kenny Rogers. Um, and like the Anne Murray success before it, that was a hit that crossed genres. It reached number one on the country chart and, and earned a Grammy for Best Country Duo for Dottie and Kenny, but it also scored high on the pop and adult contemporary rankings. Um, was that the sort of thing where you sat down and you said, okay, we're going to write a, a duet? Did, did you know the song was going to be a duet when you wrote it? I, I didn't write that for, um, for that project. I wrote that song as a pop duet, really, and uh, uh, I played it for Brent and he's 
said, oh, man, let's, let's think about that for Dottie and, and Kenny. And I said, mm-hmm. well, they've been doing, you know, Kenny's been doing all these duets. I don't know that he's going to be into it. And so <laughs> I, we got a hold of Kenny, and, and he says, no, I can't do any more duets. I mean, absolutely not. <laughs> I said, well, you just listen to it. You know, just listen to it. And he said, okay, I'll listen to it. And he heard it, and he goes, well... Okay, I'll do one more. Maybe one more. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and that song aside, um, you know, most of these things, it seems that when you were working with Dottie, you were writing with her in mind. Um, do you prefer to write with an artist in mind, or you, do you kind of like just to go where where inspiration strikes and then see where the song lands? I tend to just write the song and worry about who's going to cut it later. And there have been times that I've, I've done an overt attempt at uh, one artist, and, and it's worked out a couple of times, you know, like with a 2020, which uh, Tipner and I wrote for uh, George Benson, and If You Would Have Been Faithful for Chicago. I mean, if those two artists had not wanted to do those songs, then nobody would have done them, because right. the demos and everything were entirely aimed at them. Yeah. So, so I, you know, once in, a, once in a while I aim at somebody, but a lot of times I just write. I mean, sort of semi-switching gears here. You know, in the in the early '80s, uh, you know, you had a top five hit with Conway Twitty and, and Loretta Lynn's duet of "It's True Love," um, and then Sonny James had a, a hit with with "Foolin' Me." Obviously, you had the stuff going on with with Dottie West. These were really like legacy um, country artists. But then in 1984, you you took a step away from the Nashville world uh, in a in a pretty big way and found major success collaborating with with Steve Perry on uh, eight of the 10 tracks from his hugely successful double platinum album, uh, Street Talk. So tell us how you got connected with Steve and what your first writing session together was like. Well, uh, you know, I did my best to try to expand my writing career in Nashville in the late 70s and early 80s and found it more and more difficult because I was already sort of branded as a pop writer, I guess. Right. And um, so Gail and I, we're not ready to move to LA yet, so we moved to Connecticut because hmm. we had, you know, two daughters, and I really liked that area anyway, and they had good schools and all that. Well, the minute I got up to Connecticut, I started getting calls from people like Steve Perry and hmm. and Steve Elizabeth with Toto and all that, and and you know, because I had been going to LA anyway. Yeah, Steve was a actually uh, recommended to me, I think, by a fellow uh, studio musician. Uh, some sessions I played in New York. Uh, had, had mentioned, hey, Stephen, you ought to try to write with this guy, Randy Goodrum, and oh, what songs has he written? Oh, he wrote Blue and Blue, and so on and so forth. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he called me up one day out of the blue and says, hey, it's Steve Perry, I'm doing a solo record. Uh, I like uh, your songs, and he named a couple to you. Uh, I'm going to do a solo record. When can you be out here? And I said, tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I, it turns out I had a plane ticket already. Wow. Because I'd been going out there regularly anyway. Yeah. So uh, I flew out the next day, and and uh, we wrote Foolish Heart that day. Uh, you know, it's interesting because he said he was fans of my writing, but I, you know, I knew them as pretty much a, a rock band. Right, right. And I thought uh, I'm not really known so much as a rock writer, you know. But uh, right. uh, so I thought, well, I'll just take 
something that I do that that's genuinely me. And that way, if that doesn't fit, then you know we will at least had a nice morning and maybe a good cup of coffee or something. Right. So I, I went to the piano before I went out there and I, I came up with that little riff that starts off Foolish Heart. Mm-hmm. Right. Just to kind of get into the mood and I said, here's kind of how I, uh, you know, and I mean, we, next thing you know, we uh, we had Foolish Heart done. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that one of the greatest marriages of lyric and melody that emerged from the pop music world in the 1980s is Foolish Heart. Um, do you tend to work with melody for a while and kind of shape the melody and, and then put words to it, or do they sort of come all at once? Now that you've, now that you've made my day, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to expand on that a little bit. First yeah. of all, you know, every time I uh, I do anything that's ever mattered, uh, it seems, any kind of meeting or, or whatever, there's always been that prickly feeling of, ooh, he's either going to love this or he's going to Right. I'm going to end up with a boot mark in my rear and <laughs> head back to my car. Right. You know, anytime you feel any different than that, there may not be that, that wonderful risk thing in the air. Uh, and that's what happened when I walked in with that little start to Foolish Heart, because I thought, you know, I'm not going to sit down and start panning the keys like Jerry Lee Lewis and try to get into a real rocky mood here. Right. And um, he started uh, coming up with these little nondescript melodies and uh, of course his voice was like an angel sure. you know, and, uh, and so we instantly started coming up with uh, lines and 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 so he you know it was about two o'clock maybe three or something like that and he says and we had a little uh, Tascam four track cassette recorder there we were making a little mock demo you know and electric piano and drum machine and stuff <clears throat> And he said, "Well, that's good. Let, let's let's maybe we can think of doing another one." I said, "We haven't done this one yet." And he goes, well, "What do you mean? We can get the lyrics from another." And I said, "No, no, no, no. Let's write the whole thing. Good yeah. done." Yeah. I said, "We're we're really in the moment here. We we have a premise. We know what we're writing about." Because that was what I was used to in Nashville. I right. Mean, sure. Not just writing with co-writers there, because I will say that they do try to get it done in one day there. Not because it's of speed necessarily, but because. You know what the song's about. They've got the tools. They've got the craft. Yeah. Let's get her done. You know, mm-hmm. one of my little pet rules was that you never feel the same any two days in your life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So if whatever you're feeling that day about that song and however your focus is, you may think you're going to get back to it on another day, but you never quite mm-hmm. get back to where you were. Yeah. You makes just sense. don't. You get close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but. Uh, so I, I was afraid we were going to lose the focus, and so we finally finished the demo about 11 p.m. Mm, yeah. And it was, but it was done. Yeah. I mean, wow. That song was ready for the griddle. And Amazing. Then I came back, and we wrote for the next three days, and then I went back to Connecticut after you know, and I got a call about a week later, and he says, "Well, you going to come back or what?" And I said, <laughs> oh. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Oh, awesome. Well, the the first single from that Street Talk album was Oh Sherry, which was a number three pop single in mid 1984. You Should have been over by now. Oh, 
I remember that song being everywhere. Um, and, and that song is a unique one. It, it grabs you right from the outset. It's got that acapella line, should have been gone. And I, I'll spare everybody me trying to sing that line. <laughs> but, you know, so often you have a, a, a verse that kind of starts mellow and then it builds into this big lift in the chorus. But this one comes out with just a, a uppercut, you know, from the very first line. As a songwriter, how do you stay mindful of kind of grabbing a listener's attention without being gimmicky? Well, I can't take credit for that because I only wrote lyrics on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, that was, uh, I, I think uh, you're right about that, and I think uh, sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes mm. you have to, you know, every every song is a, is, is a situation, you know, and it's, it's, it's a unique little character that... Uh, um, has its own little needs in, in, in order to, to fully be what it should be. And, you know, you didn't need to have a little, a little build-up to, oh, Sherry, I mean, it, it, that was bang on. I mean, yeah. and the thing was, when I, when I was writing lyrics for that, uh, I, had, I had already written everything else I was going to write for that record, and it was toward the end of it. And Steve said, well, you know, we got this tune, and, don't have lyrics for it yet, and uh, I could use help on that. And I said, sure. So by then, I, I kind of knew Steve, and uh, I, I knew a little bit about some of his relationships, and so um, I just had a lot of fun with it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When I was a little kid, I had a massive crush on Sylvia, who was a pop influence country singer best known for the song nobody i remember i had her her record i just thought that she was just you know the prettiest woman i'd ever seen at age seven or however old <laughs> i was uh but in 1985 uh, you and uh, brent mayer wrote fallen in love which was a number two country hit for her um you were obviously still having big success on the country charts but you were also scoring on the pop charts with the Steve Perry stuff and on the R&B charts with George Benson's hit 2020. Um, somewhere in there, you officially relocated to, to Los Angeles. So why did you feel the need to, to make that move when you were already having all this <laughs> cross-genre success with, with what you were doing? I, um, I felt like uh, I wanted to work with people who wanted to work with me. That's, mm. If I had a, a rule in business, that would be it. I like to work with people who like to work with me. And right. So that sounds simple, but there was a demand for what I do uh, in L.A., uh, more than New York, it turns out. I, I thought I could, uh, I was hoping I could work out in New York. I really liked it, but but L.A., I mean, I had opportunities right and left, and, and sure. I loved the music that was going on out there, especially in the 80s, I was part of that West Coast sound thing, you know, with Toto and Foster and Grade and all those guys. And right. That was, that was, that really hit me in the jazz part. You know, I was able to sort of um, play some major sevens now and then. You know? <laughs> well, during that, uh, that L.A. Uh, season in your life, you wrote Who's Holding Donna Now? which was a major hit on the pop, R&B, and adult contemporary charts for DeBarge in the summer of 1985. Now, you wrote that one with Jay Graydon and David Foster, who was just one of the kings of 80s pop music. 
How did you get connected with David? And tell us a bit about the experience of collaborating with L.A.-based writers and producers kind of versus working with Nashville writers and producers. Here's what happened. I went to a um, seminar in Phoenix in 1980, I think. And on the panel was me, Bill Champlin, David Foster, and Jay Graydon. And uh, at the time, uh, that was when I met Jay and David and Bill. And uh, and Jay was a major fan of Bluer Than Blue. And uh, that particular seminar generated uh, uh, our friendship. Jay and I have have maintained a very strong friendship uh, Mm -hmm. still. And the thing is, Jay, when I kept trying to get me when I was living in the New York area, kept getting me to move to LA. He said, "Man, you got to move to LA. You just got to move here." So when I first moved out there, uh, I thought, "Oh, what have I done?" Well, <laughs> he as a he told me he he tossed me a bone is what he said, which was he says, "Hey, I've got this Elder Bars thing. You want to do the lyrics?" Because I I was starting to get work as a lyricist, which again bothers my mind because. You know, when I uh, very first started writing music back in college, the last thing I cared about was lyrics. I thought, who cares yeah. about the lyrics? You know, and now <laughs> I get a ton of work writing lyrics. Hmm. Yeah, funny. Yeah, so so the funny thing about Who's Holding Donna now is that when I heard that melody, I thought, <clears throat> well, you know, I write these little sleepy melodies like this, so I have to, to keep in mind the way to counter that. If you're going to have a little horizontal mellow melody, you better have some beef in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and that's, that's been one of my sort of secret weapons, I guess, if I had one. And so I said, when I, when I wrote the lyrics for Who's Holding Down, and I was on my way over to Jay's house, which wasn't far from my house in, in Studio City. And I got almost to his driveway, and I just turned around and went back home, and, and Gail says, what's going on, my wife? And mm-hmm. I said, eh, I, I, I don't think it's great yet. So I sat down and completely rewrote it wow. from wow. end to stern. I said, I want every line to be uh, to stand on its own. I mean, mm. I don't want it to be, oh, it's going to get to a good line in a minute. Right. You know, yeah. I, I said, I want every line to be important. I want it to be chiseled. So when I took that over there, it was granite. It was ready. Right. And, uh, yeah. So... That's the one thing I'm proud about. I, I think that that song and, and that record, uh, the way Jay produced it, is one of the best covers I ever had yeah, in yeah. every way. The the following year, you worked with David Foster again uh, when the two of you teamed up with Jim Valance to write another number one country hit for Anne Murray, Now and Forever. And that song was the ASCAP Country Song of the Year in 1986. Um you see a lot of Nashville guys go to L.A. because they want to write pop, but they then end up collaborating with pop guys who want to write country, and sometimes they they miss each other. Um, that was not the case for you. I mean, you were able to sort of maintain this identity that, that was able to float between um, different genres. Um, and from that perspective, uh, I- I'm curious, do you think that that is something that is just uh, a skill that you worked on or just who you are naturally because it's it's not the kind of thing that you see being successful for a lot of people. Well, you know, being a Southern guy and growing up uh, around all of this, uh, you know, country and pop and rock and R&B and stuff, it's all right here. It's easy to change hats. 
Mm. I, I mean, it's not a piece of cake, but it's easier. Yeah, right. That yeah. gives us, you know, I, I think that people from where I'm from have an advantage, actually. Right. Uh, I remember uh, running into studio musicians when I was, my first life as a, as a musician was a, a studio musician. And some of the great players, even in L.A. and New York, were guys from, like, Shreveport or Texas or, right. you know, Missouri. Or, I mean, they had they had one foot in that blues thing. You know? Sure, that, yeah. That you, and if you weren't raised up in it, you had to synthesize it somehow. Mm, right. As far as me being able to uh, go across genres, when I go to L.A., uh, I can do that thing. That's right. no problem. But yeah. if you ever want to break out and you know get over to some funky bluesy swampy thing, yeah, I'm there. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, you, you you mentioned your first life as a studio musician and maybe your second life as a writer. In 1986, you were able to kind of enter maybe your third life as a musician when you had a top 40 single on the adult contemporary charts as an artist, um, both songwriter and artist with Silhouette. Um, was that something you'd always wanted to do, to be a recording artist, or did you kind of stumble into that? I I uh, did want to be... I did want to ha- have some success as, a, as an artist for mm. one reason. Uh, there were certain songs I felt nobody would ever record, and right. if I didn't do them, nobody would. Right. And uh, for me, it was just... An, uh, I would like to have been an artist as a means to an end, and the end being to have my work mm. be heard. And, um, you know, I know that if you're going to be an artist and do it successfully, you have to sort of live the life of the artist. You have to, um, you have to pretty much be, you have to go out and perform and get a band together and and do all that. You know, I mean, and and what happened was, um, I had done some performing, uh, Chet, uh, kind of broke me into that. Chet Atkins, uh, used to, well, actually what happened was one time, um, uh, we were doing a concert, uh, and he was introducing the band. He goes, you know, hey, this is my piano player, Randy Goodrum, and he's a songwriter also. Hey, Rand, play some of your songs. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm going, duh, you know. So <laughs> On the spot. <laughs> I had to learn at least a verse and a chorus, and I started, I put together a little medley, and so I started doing a little part of the show. I started doing a little, you know, medley of my hit, or hits, whatever. And, um, so then uh, I uh, opened for Ray Charles one time, Wow! Man. Uh, doing the same kind of thing, and in the audience was a guy from GRP Records, and uh, they offered me a record deal. And, I, and, and so I just went back to my studio, and I, and I made that album. And, uh, so they, and you know what's funny is that um, they were a jazz record label, right? And, and they weren't used to having... Popper or 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 AC hits, hmm, right? But I was sort of well known to AC Radio. So when they released my album, AC Radio picked picked it up. Sure. And you know, next thing you know, it's like fourteen on the charts or something. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. And they're they're thinking, oh my god, uh, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I I was very humbled and honored hmm. to uh, for them to let me make a record for them. It was a lot of fun. Uh, terrific uh, experience. Yeah. Well, in late 1986, you had another major hit with Toto's I'll Be Over You, which you, of course, co-wrote with Steve Lukather. As soon as my heart 
obviously Steve is, is known for his work with Toto, but he is an exceptional guitarist who's played on on countless recordings. And uh, around that same time, you also collaborated with with Steve Morse and, and Steve Walsh of Kansas to write the song Power. Um, and like Steve Lukather, Steve Morse is an exceptional guitarist, you know, best known for, you know, his band, the Dixie Dregs and some of the just amazing um, guitar work that he's done. What are the, the benefits, you know, you being a piano player, um, what do you like about writing with someone who specializes on a different instrument than you? Well, one of the beauties of uh, spending time in Nashville in the 70s was learning how to work with guitar players. Right. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Steve Lizard is that uh, he and I quite often would, would work mainly at the piano because he's also a really good keyboard player. Huh. So, you know, a lot of the songs we've written together, quite a bit of the writing on the keyboard was done by him or me. It's kind of hard to tell which from which. But sure. uh, Yeah, when we wrote I'll Be Over You, um, we were not writing it for Toto. But as a matter of fact, I had written a bunch of songs with Steve and had never intended, and never thought that Toto would ever cut any of them because huh. they didn't use outside writer. Right. So, uh, actually, it started out that day trying to write a song for uh, Julio Iglesias because he'd gotten a call from the producer and... and we weren't really into writing something for him, but we said, well, let's just see what we can do. And, right. And so after about 10 minutes, we realized we were already not going to have a song for Julio. <laughs> so anyway, we wrote that song, and we demoed it. And uh, and, and they were having a total rehearsal over at uh, David Page's studio. Well, I, I said, well, I want, I want to find out how these demos sound in other places. So can you take our demo, and when you have a break over uh, while you're rehearsing, can you just go into his control room and play it real low and see what it sounds like? And he said, sure. So he played it during one of the breaks, and it was either Jeff, I think Jeff ran in and said, we're cutting that. Yeah, huh, nice. And uh, Steve says, but, but I wrote it with Rant. And they said, that's okay. Wow. Huh. And so I, I became, I think, the first outside writer that they uh, used. Well, Chicago had a, a, a major hit with your song, If She Would Have Been Faithful, in 1987, kind of bringing that uh, that Bill Champlin meeting around uh, full circle. And at that time, they were riding high on a string of really successful pop singles. What's the story behind that song? Well, actually, uh, it, that was written with Steve Tipner. And Steve had the premise. He walked in and says, I've got this idea about uh, running across uh, some, a photograph, and it's, it's somebody that I thought I really should have been with. And, but it turns out that they did me in, and thank God that they did, because I would have never met who I really should mm. be with. You know? yeah. so it, it, was, you know, it was an interesting, highly focused, sliver of a premise and uh, my favorite kind and hmm. so we uh, we just dug in and uh, we probably wrote the song completely in a couple of days but then we just hammered and hammered to get the demo to sound as good as we could and as Chicago as we could <laughs> right that's one of the things I liked about LA though is LA compared to Nashville when I was in Nashville in the 70s even then there was this sense that there was a certain amount of time 
that you had to write a song. Hmm. You had to start at a certain time. You had to end at a certain time. And and if you went beyond that, there must be something wrong, you know. Hmm. Or right. And uh, and so I, I it, it was kind of nice to go to a place that that there are no rules, you know. I mean, like L.A. I think they change the rules every day. And, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's, uh, I like that. I think that's good. You know, there's this theme that is kind of emerging uh, from the, the Randy Goodrum story of this kind of ping pong match uh, between uh, Nashville and, and L.A. Um, and, and the success back and forth. And in the late 1990s, there was kind of another uh, shift back toward uh, the country um, success. John Barry had a top 20 country hit with uh, I Will If You Will. Um, Jody Messina had a number two country single and a, and a 28 pop hit with her revival of the, you know, Dottie West's uh, Lesson in Leaving record. Um, did those renewed successes back in Nashville um, influence the type of stuff that you were writing in that era? I guess, in other words, did you kind of focus back in on country more as a result of uh, those successes? I, I guess so. I, uh, when Gail and I decided not to stay in L.A. anymore, uh, we ended up back in Nashville, and uh, uh, I thought I would sort of try to get back into country more. And, you know, for me... I tried it till about 1998 or so, writing-wise. Right. And I realized that I was just... Anytime I try to force myself to write a certain... I didn't feel like I was uh, evolving. And so what I started doing was, uh, even though I was living in Nashville, I started visiting other territories. Right. Uh, going, to, going overseas and uh, places like that. And, uh, and that sort of brought the spice back mm, interesting uh, and finding other places that um wanted to work with me and wanted to uh, you know just fresh air so to speak. yeah yeah it's interesting to just to think of that um there's kind of a geographical uh theme as well that's intertwined with your creative spirit as you're talking and and the, how arkansas uh kind of shaped you and how nashville had its own impact i find that Interesting from the idea of a, a creative viewpoint of getting into a different space to kind of explore different parts of your own creativity. I think that's really fascinating. To me, I was very humbled by the way I uh, had my early success, and I learned something from that, and I and I still do in, in a sort of a Zen way. I look back and realize that you know my very first publisher was maybe the mo- maybe the best I ever had because he said. I don't get it, but I'll publish it. I like it. Yeah. And I never forgot that. And I thought, what a great environment. Because yeah. it, it, it's really a way of saying I have faith in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I had thought, see, because you needed me and Blue Than Blue and Fed of Long were so weird when I wrote those. <laughs> the demos, I mean, nobody, they, I played those for people and they looked at me like they were getting ready to call security. You know? and, uh, <laughs> right. and, but, but they, they sort of, if you think about it, I mean, you needed me was number one during the disco era. Sure. I mean, it was slam bam disco. Sure. And then, and then creeping along in the middle of all that, this icebreaker, you needed me. Yeah. And, and so, I, so the thing is, but it's humbling to me uh, to think of that because I realize the best work I can do is just to sit at the piano and do the best I can. Yeah. 
write the best song I can, and if I get lucky, and somebody has faith in what I do, then it'll find a place. Yeah. You know? And of course, uh, I try to stay in, uh, up with the biz the best I can and stuff, but if I try to trick the system too much, if I try to go in and do a knockoff of so-and-so's last single and stuff like that, right? It, it's, you know, maybe you get a little success from that, but not you, you don't hit it over the chance. You know? Right, it's, yeah. Uh, well, Randy, our our last question for you, and then we'll let you go. But you you received a well deserved induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in two thousand. And as we go, just tell us a little bit about what that meant for you personally and professionally. Oh, it was uh, it was one of the highlights of my entire career. As a matter mm. of fact, in my studio now, uh, the one thing I have displayed is is my uh, uh, that that trophy they give you from being in the songwriter hall of fame. Yeah. Yeah, that's sitting on my desk over there. Just to scare the and, other writers. Uh, yeah, I mean it was <laughs> it was a real validation yeah. and it was uh it was really quite an honor. And uh um you know, it's it's nice to be liked. Yeah. And so it was uh it was nice to be validated by my fellow writers and uh, especially especially Nashville because, you know, they don't take prisoners there in the writing department. Okay? Right. So you, you got to, you can talk your way in and write your way out. You know, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to have the good. And so yeah. I, uh, I, I felt, I, I feel like it's a super honor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you certainly had the goods and it's, it's just inspiring for us to hear your story of really kind of remaining true to yourself and, you know, not trying to be somebody else, but being the, the best Randy Goodrum that uh, you could be and writing some of these uh, just amazing songs that for both Paul and I are part of the, the patchwork of our growing up years and the songs that we were hearing on the radio and, and shaping our ideas of what makes for a, a great melody and a, and a great lyric. And so you've certainly been an inspiration to us and it has been an honor for us to, to talk with you today. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.